All right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning, and I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that's where we're at today. Last week, Pastor Dylan did a good job of transitioning us back into our normal, healthy diet of expositional preaching. Advent, uh, before Christmas, that was a good snack, but in this new year, we need to get back to a healthy diet, more ways than one probably, and so we're going to dive back into 2 Corinthians today. What Pastor Dylan did last week was pretty remarkable, as he hit the highlights of around 10 sermons already from 2 Corinthians, and he did all that in 39 minutes. 39 minutes, according to the podcast. I listened to it in 2x speed, so it was 20 minutes. That's the way to go. I, I, uh, I appreciate Pastor Dylan. Uh, I appreciate uh, his willingness to share God's word with you, uh, do the work uh, to prep for today. Um, he caught you back up. He refocused you on some of the major themes of 2 Corinthians. He talked to you about lessons we learned about identity, that you are a saint if you are in Christ. That is your positional identity, and you are called practically to live that out in holiness, in righteousness, in service unto the Lord. He talked about grace and peace and how they travel together vertically and horizontally. Grace and peace are always traveling together. He talked about suffering and comfort. That teach us to depend upon the Lord uh, and not on ourselves. We depend on God who raises the dead. Talked about growth. Asked you what your plan is in the new year for growing in Christ. Talked about Paul's pastoral heart a little bit. About how some of the hard things that Paul shares in this letter are coming out of heart of concern and love and compassion for the people to whom he is writing. Talked about church discipline and restoration. How we are called to forgive and comfort and reaffirm one another. With repentance, right? When there's repentance, there's restoration. Satan would love to get in the way and break that down at every step. And yet God continues to teach us about the importance of community, about the importance of the local church in particular, how we need each other. We need each other every day. I need you. You need me. We need to be part of a local body. Pastor Dylan also stoked some excitement about God's word in general, our hope. <clears throat> is that your posture toward returning to 2 Corinthians is a little different than your posture toward returning to a regular diet uh, in, your, in your physical life. Like I hope that when I said turn to 2 Corinthians, you had a little di different posture than eating a salad instead of pizza for lunch. I hope you're excited to get back to that. <coughs> I'm going to apologize for this. Um, been nursing this all week and uh, may, may be a problem today. We'll do, we'll do our best, though, and trust, trust God's strength. He tried to stoke that excitement about God's word, uh, and he encouraged you to make meaningful spiritual commitments as you enter this new year. Commitments to grow in your walk with Jesus, uh, commitments to grow in your engagement with God's word, commitments to grow in your participation with this body. And all of that, what Pastor Dylan did last week, made my job easier for today. <clears throat> I can simply review the most recent passage in 2 Corinthians, which is verse 12 and 13, as we dive back into what comes next. <coughs> Just before Advent, we saw Paul put his heart on display as he showed the believers in Corinth once again that he really cares about them, he really loves them, and he wants good things for them in Christ. Remember, he walked away from a wide open door for effective service in Troas in order to express his concern for them 
and find out what was happening in Corinth. He went looking for Titus to find out how things were going uh, in the aftermath of that painful letter he wrote. And that day, when we covered verses 12 and 13, we talked about the anxiety of ministry being real and, and the need to follow Paul's example in being honest about that, being honest about the pressures we face as pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, parents, friends, disciple makers, that when we watch people less than faithful in their following of the Lord, that causes stress. It causes distress even. Paul says, I found no peace in my spirit when I didn't know what was going on in Corinth. And we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest with each other. We need to create a safe space where we can share our burdens with one another. But in the midst of the anxiety, we talked about that work must go on. Paul doesn't stop preaching the gospel when he hits a hiccup in Corinth. He doesn't stop preaching the gospel even when he travels away from Troas. He continues to be steadfast in the work, and we must be steadfast as well. I'm challenged by the Apostle Paul here. I'm challenged about how to talk about difficulties and maybe even talk about a desire to throw in the towel without throwing in the towel, without quitting. I'm, I'm challenged to find that balance between being honest and vulnerable and open and yet continuing on in the work. And Paul is a good example of that. Open and honest and yet steadfast. <coughs> and one of the keys for how he was able to do that is he was never alone. He was never alone in the work. Remember, he's going to try to find Titus to hear about what's going on. He's often with Timothy or another brother, uh, always in community with the churches that he's serving. One of the keys to that honesty and steadfastness is togetherness. And I wonder if we have kind of care and concern for each other that Paul had for the brothers and sisters that were around him. I wonder if First Baptist Church is growing as a community of love like that. Well, you may remember that there was a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of verse 13. Paul doesn't say immediately whether or not he found Titus. He doesn't say if he heard how things were going in Corinth, let alone how they were actually going in Corinth. He really doesn't get back to that line of thought until chapter 7, verse 5. Paul Barnett calls what happens from verse 14 of chapter 2 through chapter 7, verse 4, a long digression about the apostolic ministry of the new covenant. In other words... This long section that we're about to jump into is a defense and an explanation of Paul's ministry, Paul's authority, and it's most likely given in the face of attacks from these so-called super apostles who are causing all kinds of trouble in Corinth. And today we're going to look at the very beginning of that defense, a passage in which Paul uses a couple of illustrations that are totally foreign to us. Like He's going to talk about these parades that happened in the Roman Empire that we know very little about. He's going to talk about the aromas of the sacrificial system that we know nothing about. But both of these things would have been very well known to his audience. And so we've got some work to do to try to understand what's going on in this text. So read it with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 14. (coughs) God's word says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? 
For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, grant that the whole world would get a smell of Jesus through us. That through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ would indeed spread to every place. Lord, grant that many would embrace the fragrance of Christ as life and hope and salvation. We pray that this would be the case for many who are near to us, dear to us even. And we pray that this would be the case for the multitudes all over the planet. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Oh Lord, grant grant salvation, mercy, and grace. And Lord, guard us from any perversion or compromise in the ministry that you've entrusted to us. Let us speak from sincerity always, never peddling your word as many do, as we are often tempted to do. Remind us that when we preach your word, we are from you, we are in Christ, and you see it all. So keep us humble and keep us faithful always. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. So as you're reading through 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it seems like a pretty abrupt abrupt shift of gears from verse 13 to 14. And that leads some people to speculate that this is the seam that binds two separate documents together. As if there was one letter uh, that ends in verse 13 and a new letter that begins in verse 14 and they're going to be sewn together at this seam. Some people speculate that, but I don't think that's good speculation at all. There is a really clear connection in the flow of thought, especially as we understand the situation in Corinth. You see, there's some people in Corinth who seize on every hint of suffering in Paul's life to discredit him as an apostle and a trustworthy leader. And he has just once again mentioned the deep anguish he experiences in ministry. In verse 13, he says, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. And there are some people in Corinth who will likely jump in at this point and say, see, see, he cannot be trusted. He can't be authoritative. What kind of leader, what kind of true leader from God with God's stamp of approval struggles like this? Paul is rather going to seize the opportunity as he does throughout the letter and say, actually, this suffering, this anguish in my heart is proof of my authority and trustworthiness. He's going to say in response to that anguish of heart, thanks be to God, because this is the way that he spreads the good news about Jesus throughout the whole world, through the faithful perseverance of his servants in suffering as the gospel is proclaimed. You see, suffering is one of the means by which God accomplishes his purpose. Let me say that again, because it's not something you often think of. Suffering is one of the means by which God accomplishes his purpose. And that's all over the Bible. In fact, a lot of you have just started a new reading plan for the new year. You're seven days into it. And I want to encourage you as you read through, the, through God's word this year to be on the lookout for moments when God clearly uses suffering as a means to accomplish his purpose. And I think if we start to see that more and more in the scriptures, and it's all over 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> not just 2 Corinthians, but the whole Bible. As we see that more and more in the scriptures, we'll be better equipped to engage our own suffering more faithfully. Like as suffering comes in 2024, if you see these principles in Scripture, you'll be able to interpret your own suffering better. You'll be able to engage your own suffering better as you see that God often uses suffering as a means to accomplish his purpose. So this 
expectation of the opposition's argument serves as a launching pad for what will be an extended defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. He will tell the people in Corinth, I am to be trusted. The message I preach is from the Lord. There is not another hope for salvation. Look what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now to understand what's going on here, we have to know something about the images that Paul uses. The first is of a Roman parade of triumph, or some scholars call it a triumphal procession. These events would have been well known to all of Paul's audience. All over the Roman Empire, these would take place after major battles. And even if people hadn't attended one of these parades in person, they would have been familiar with them because they were featured in all kinds of art. On arches over major roadways, they would depict these parades in paintings, in statues, in frescoes, even on coins, even on minted coins. Sometimes these parades were featured. One scholar pointed out that over 350 of these such parades, these triumphal processions, 350 of them are mentioned in ancient literature. They would have known all about these parades, but we know very little about them. And so I want to remedy that a little bit today. I want to teach you about these triumphal processions that were part of Roman conquest. These massive parades were held to bring honor to the conquering general after a major victory over an enemy. Right? They were held to bring honor to the conquering general. And there were often several parts of these parades. Oftentimes they would be led by some art, some, some banners uh, or paintings or, or some other depictions of the battle scene. That would be the first part of the parade, kind of like, kind of like uh, at the homecoming parade before the band comes, there are two people carrying the banner, right? Here comes the band, right? There would be somebody carrying a banner like that, talking about, talking about the battle that had been won. After that would come the spoils of the war. Right, right behind the banner, there would be maybe barrels or wagons filled with gold and jewels and other things that were taken in the battle itself. And after that, there would be several white bulls uh, that at the end of the parade would get sacrificed. Um, we'll talk more about sacrifice at the end of the parade in a minute. Because right after that, right after those white bulls would come the conquered people. Those enemies who had been defeated in battle and taken prisoner would be marching at the front of the parade. And at the end of the parade, they would all meet their deaths. They would all be sacrificed um, as the final uh, symbol of victory for this general. And after the conquered people came the incense burners, some people who would march with uh, censers full of incense that would be um, wafting up this smoke and this fragrance that would go along with the parade. And after the incense burners would come the triumphant general. The star of the show would be at this point. And all eyes were on him. He would often be uh, carried up high on the shoulders of servants so that people would see him on a, a litter uh, that was very fancy and ornate. And all eyes would be on this conquering general. And after him would come grateful citizens who had been delivered from whatever enemy this was. Maybe people that lived in the city that was defended or liberated, they would be marching behind the general. And then finally, after him, would come the soldiers at the very end of the parade, the soldiers who had actually fought in the battle. So there were all of these kind of waves of the parade. 
And there is some disagreement about how Paul is using the imagery of the triumphal procession here as he writes in 2 Corinthians. Particularly, the debate is centered about where Paul sees himself in the procession. There's some debate about where Paul sees himself and us in the procession uh, that he's talking about. Fortunately, there's no debate. There's nearly universal agreement about the identity of the victor that is being celebrated in this parade. Who is the one who has triumphed? It is the Lord. It is the Lord who has conquered. The parade is intended to spread the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ, to spread the fame of his name far and wide. So when we talk about the conquering general, it is God who is on that litter. It is God who is being celebrated. It is he who is the spotlight of attention. Now, there are some people that will say that Paul intends to place himself with the Lord in the spotlight that he intends to identify himself with the victory and the triumph of the Lord as if he is in the litter with the Lord. And maybe as one of the soldiers, or maybe as one of the soldiers who participated in the battle and won the victory. Maybe that Paul is highlighting, in fact, his union with Christ by faith. That he is united with Jesus in this victory. And some of your translations lend, lend themselves that way. New American Standard does it like that. He leads us in triumph in Christ as if we are participating in the triumph right along with Christ, focusing on our union with him. King James Version definitely lends itself to this understanding. Other people will say that Paul intends to place himself among the incense bearers. Not, not on, the, on the cart in the spotlight, but one of the incense bearers spreading the perfume of the victory for everyone to smell. And they make an interesting application about our duty in evangelism here in saying that we don't, create the message. We just spread the aroma. Gary Miller, in fact, takes this stance, and he says, <clears throat> this is encouraging, he says, being an incense bearer didn't require a terribly high degree of expertise. All you really needed to do as an incense bearer was walk along and let the fragrance waft. The incense bearer doesn't have to create the aroma. He or she just shows up, holds up the incense, and the smoke does the rest. That's pretty interesting, right? If that's part of our job, we show up and let the smoke do the work. We don't have to be experts. We just let the fragrance waft about. But still others take a less comfortable position and assume that Paul places himself among the conquered enemies at the front of the parade who are being led to their death. That's not a comfortable position. It's not a comfortable perspective. But I believe that perspective fits best with the context of 2 Corinthians as Paul defends his apostleship in light of his sufferings. In 2 Corinthians, he talks a lot about being given over to death. In, in this letter, he's constantly mentioning being given over to death. It also fits with Paul's overall perspective on his experience. He was an enemy of Christ. He was overcome by Christ. He is now a slave of Christ. Seems that if Paul is going to say, I'm in the parade, yeah, I'm one of those who has been overcome. I'm one of those who has been conquered. And my conquering brings glory to the one who conquered. Seems to fit with Paul's perspective on himself and his position. Seems to fit with the context of 2 Corinthians. Seems also to fit with Jesus' own call to discipleship. He calls us not to be the victors, but to lay down our lives to lose our lives and find it. In fact, look what he says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There are a number of schools of thought about where Paul might place himself in this parade. But regardless of where he places himself and us in this parade, the point is the same. Look at the text. The Lord leads us. Right? It is his parade. It is his parade. He is the victor. He is the one in the spotlight. And through us, this is the second thing that is abundantly clear. Through us, he spreads the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. So whether through our union with him in his victory, or our humble obedience in evangelism, or our self-denying, cross-carrying sacrifice, he is spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places through us. Do you see that in the text? Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. In fact, maybe one of the reasons why there's been such a debate about this parade for 2,000 years is that Paul doesn't intend to limit our experience to one part or the other, but rather to highlight the various perspectives of the Christian life. Whether in victory or in sacrifice, he is using us to get his message out. Right? Whether we are merely in humble service or whether we are exalted with him in Christ, he's using us to get the message out. The good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, goes to all the places through us. He is spreading the message through us. That's what I want you to see. In fact, look at verse 15. Paul doubles down on it. Verse 15, he says, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. He's doubling down on the point here. And he mixes in another image. This one from the temple and the burnt offerings that were given to the Lord. It seems like here Paul envisions his life and ours as followers of Jesus, his life and ours as a sacrifice, a burnt offering whose aroma rises up to the Lord. And he says it smells like Christ to God. So I want you to observe here that the first audience of this sacrifice, the first audience of this aroma, the first one to smell the smell is God himself. Think here of a life that is dedicated and set apart, wholly given unto the Lord. And the fragrance unto the Lord is a pleasing aroma. In fact, it's the aroma of his perfect son. His perfect son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that's what our lives are like. But notice there's a secondary audience. Primary audience, first audience is God. But a secondary audience is people. So this fragrance of Christ rises up to God as our lives are offered as a burnt offering unto him, but it happens among people. Remember in verse 14 he said, he manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, right? Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is not a private, hidden thing. Other people are experiencing this sacrifice as well, the aroma of this sacrifice as well. And Paul notes two particular kinds of people and their responses to this aroma. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. Now let's just take one second and acknowledge that those are the only two types of people in the world, right? Only two kinds of people in the world. 
those who are perishing, and those who are being saved. So maybe let's consider which are you? Which are you? Are you among those who are perishing or among those who are being saved? Those who are perishing, the text says, catch a whiff of the aroma of Christ. They, they smell this aroma of Christ rising up from our lives given as a burnt offering. They catch a whiff of the aroma of Christ through the life of his people, and it smells like death to them. It smells like death to them because they are in an environment of death already. It's an aroma of death from death, death to death. It's all death for them. In fact, that's the message of Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As Paul talks to believers about their old life, he says, You were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And when those folks get a whiff of Christ through the life of his faithful followers, through the life, uh, through the, the, the smell of their lives being given as a burnt offering, when those who are dead smell that, it smells like death to them. And they're repulsed by it and disgusted by it. But he says those who are being saved, they catch the same, same smell. They catch a whiff of Christ through the life of his people, and it smells like life to them. And it smells like life to them because they're alive. They have been brought from death to life. They're in an environment of life, and so Christ smells like life to them. In fact, continue on in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4 says, But God, <clears throat> being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So those who are perishing get a whiff of Christ through our lives, and it smells like death. Those who are being saved get a whiff of Christ through our lives, and it smells like life. Paul Barnett sums it up like this. To some, the gospel is just a message about a defeated dead man which they reject in the same way a person would recoil from the odor of a decomposing corpse. These people are perishing, as dead in principle as they perceive Christ to be. To others, however, the message is about the risen Christ, which they receive in a way a person welcomes a fragrance of a beautiful perfume. These people are being saved. They are as alive in principle as they perceive Christ to be. Although being sinners, they are on their way to death because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within their lives. They look forward to life beyond death. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that people can encounter the very same thing and have radically different responses? And, and we know this because this makes sense to us. Even in the, even the arena of smells, this makes sense to us, right? In fact, we'll do a little exercise. How many of you hate the smell of a skunk? It's like disgusts you. 
Probably most people in the room, right? But there are a few. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand who smell a skunk and you're like, I kind of like it. I kind of like the skunk smell. What about gasoline? Same thing? Some people just like the smell of gasoline. It's the same smell. You're all encountering the same smell, and some of you love it, and some of you hate it. It's the same way with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? On a grander scale, it's the same way with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, think about it using the image that Paul started with. If you're, if you're at one of these Roman parades, or one of these Roman parades happens to be coming through your town, and you get a whiff of the incense, you think it smells good or smells bad? It depends on your perspective, right? If you're a Roman citizen one that's maybe been delivered by the army or protected by the army, you're going to smell that incense and you're going to say, oh, that smells like victory to me. That smells like safety and protection to me. But if you're a Jewish person living in one of these Roman towns, it smells like oppression. It smells like occupation. It smells like defeat to you. Same smell. It depends on your perspective. In fact, maybe let me use an illustration from tomorrow. When Michigan's uh, fight song comes on, are you cheering or are you booing? It depend, you're booing. Dylan's booing. It depends on who you're cheering for. If you're a Michigan fan and you hear the fight song, you just stand up and clap your hands. If you're not a Michigan fan, you're probably going to be disgusted. Listen, we are talking in this text about something of far more importance than that, than any of that. We're talking about the aroma of Christ, and that has eternal implications. So I want to ask, how's he smell to you? When you get a whiff of Christ, through his people, through the lives and ministries and proclamations of his people, when you get a whiff of the Lord Jesus Christ, how's it smell to you? Smell like life or death? It's one or the other. It's, it's, it's one or the other. There's no like middle ground. There's nobody that's indifferent to the smell of Christ. It's either life unto life or death unto death to you. And Paul uses this same kind of logic in 1 Corinthians, the passage that Laura read earlier. In fact, turn over there and look at how many parallels there are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says there, to the same group of people earlier in their lives, he says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You catch it? Same word. The word of the cross to one group of people, it's foolishness. They're perishing. They receive it as foolishness. To another group of people, those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Same message. To one group, foolishness. To another group, power. And notice how he maintains this same same logic throughout this text. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
That's the message of the cross, the word of the cross. Christ crucified in the place of sinners. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. That's what we preach. We preach Christ crucified, the son of God. God in the flesh, crucified. The sinless, spotless lamb of God, crucified. Why? For sinners like you and me. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both of Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Which is it? We preach Christ crucified. We preach the holiness of God, that he must punish sin. And that was on display in Sunday school this morning in the global flood, right? We preach the holiness of God, that he must punish sin. We preach the sinfulness of man, that we deserve that punishment. And we preach the cross of Christ, that holy God made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to himself through the blood of his own son, through the death of his own son. God sent his son to die for you so that you might be saved. And for some of you, that brings about an amen. For some of you, that smells beautiful. Some of you, that is life. For others of you, it's foolishness. Like I stand up here every week. And every week to you, it's foolishness. Every week to you, you roll your eyes and you scoff. And you refuse it. You reject it. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are perishing, it's foolishness. And I originally planned to go on in 2 Corinthians and preach the end of verse 16 and verse 17 today. I'm going to save that for next week. Because I think on the first Sunday of a new year, it'd be wise for us to really consider Two questions, two camps, two types of people. First, are you perishing or are you being saved? Which are you? Are you perishing or are you being saved? Remember, there are only two types of people in the world. Maybe to help you understand which you are, what's Christ smell like to you? In fact, when we talk about Christ crucified, When we sing about Christ crucified, when we talk about the gospel, what's your response to that? If it is, this is my life, this is my hope, this is the most beautiful thing to me, this is my treasure. Probably you're in the camp of those who are being saved. And if you say, this is foolishness, it's ridiculous, I can't believe people still talk about this. You're among those who are perishing. I will say as a pastor, if you're not sure, if you if you feel like, well, I'm kind of indifferent, you're in the camp of the perishing. Because Christ is your life or he's not. He's your Lord or he's not. He's your Savior or he's not. How does Christ smell to you? Like life that leads to life or like death that leads to death? But let me let you in on a secret. Every single person in this room who delights in the aroma of Christ now, once did not. All of us who savor the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ once turned our noses at it. We once were disgusted by it, even as you are today. 
perhaps. But God changed all that. He gave us a new sense of smell, such that once that what once repulsed us now consumes us. What we once saw as death, we now see as life. What was once garbage to us is now our greatest treasure. So listen, if the truth about Jesus, if the word of the cross, if the message of his life, death, burial, and resurrection is starting to smell sweet to you, starting to smell sweet to you, God is doing something in your life. Run to him. If you are embracing his holiness, your sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice, if that is starting to smell good to you, don't wait to run to him. Run to him now. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. He's done a miraculous work in you. He's doing a miraculous work in you. Because naturally, apart from God's intervention, every man is disgusted by the cross. Starting to smell good to you. Repent and believe today. Question number one, are you perishing or are you being saved? Question number two, what do your friends smell when you're around? Are your friends and your neighbors smelling Christ when you're around? Are they smelling Christ in the way you live? By your practical righteousness and holiness? By the fruit of the Spirit on display in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jesus smells like. Do they smell Jesus in the way you live? Do they smell Jesus by the way you talk? You see, both our living and our talking are important. In fact, here at First Baptist Church, we believe that it's the duty of every child of God to seek constantly to win the loss to Christ by verbal witness undergirded by a Christian lifestyle. We don't believe that people are converted simply by witnessing your Christian lifestyle. Verbal witness, undergirded by Christian lifestyle. Nor do we believe it's effective evangelism to have a verbal witness that is contradicted by your lifestyle. We want people to smell the Lord Jesus Christ in us by our verbal witness and by our Christian lifestyle. That's his design. Are your friends and neighbors smelling Jesus when you're around? And are you endeavoring to make sure the aroma of Christ is wafting to the ends of the earth? And let me say, First Baptist Church is. First Baptist Church is making an effort to make sure the aroma of Christ is wafting to the ends of the earth. In fact, in 2023, you gave $95,929 to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That's encouraging. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. That's super encouraging to families like the O's and the T's. That's getting the aroma of Christ, the smell of Christ to the ends of the earth so that he is known everywhere. Did you see that in the design? Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ so that the aroma of Christ spreads to all places. You're a part of that by your giving to Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You're a part of that by sending O's and the T's. In fact, the, the T's have a big event coming up on Valentine's Day, February 14th in Phoenix. They will be officially, formally commissioned and appointed as, as career workers with IMB. Uh, that's a big deal. They've been, they've been working with the company for a while now, uh, but this is a step. Uh, in fact, it's the last step 
that you can take with the company. And we're going to celebrate that in Phoenix on Valentine's Day. So if you're looking for something to do on Valentine's Day in Phoenix, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about how to be a part of that. All of this is in consideration of the question, are your friends and neighbors, are the nations smelling Christ when you're around? But as we consider those questions, are you perishing or are you being saved? Are your friends and neighbors smelling Christ? As we consider those questions, let us never forget that this is the Lord's parade. That we are not the stars of the show. It's not about the O's or the T's. It's not about the International Mission Board. It's not about First Baptist Church of Harrisburg. Who's the parade? Who's the parade for? Whose name is to be known at the end of the parade? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the conquering king, the overcoming general. He is leading. He is worthy. He's the focus of attention. He's spreading the aroma of Christ through us in every place. So I'll leave you today with the immortal words of Sully Sullivan. Stink it up. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you that you have caused us to delight in the aroma of Christ as we have encountered it through the lives of your people. That as parents, neighbors, Sunday school teachers preached the gospel to us, demonstrated the gospel in the way they lived, You you caused us to smell that and smell life. You granted us faith to trust in Christ. You granted us repentance to turn from our sins. You saved us by your grace. And we are forever grateful. And we want to be the aroma of Christ to those around us. That when we're around, they would smell Jesus. And our heart's desire is that to them that would smell good, that you would cause the aroma of Christ to be pleasing to them. That it would be life to life for them. And that you would grant them faith and repentance to be saved as well. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your grace through our lives to those around us. We want to pray especially in this moment for friends and neighbors who are among us even now, who for years have smelled Jesus in this place, through our lives, through your word and by your spirit, they have smelled the knowledge of Christ and they've been disgusted. But you're changing that, changing that in them. I pray that they'll be able to see that today that they will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation today and that you will continue to spread the knowledge of Christ through their lives as they live for you in worship, in service, in obedience. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.